0: Now, some of you of a younger generation are not going to believe this. But Democrats and Republicans, we used to get along. They actually worked together to get things done, and it wasn't considered going against your party. President Lyndon Johnson, a Southern Democrat, called on Republican Senator Everett Dirksen of Illinois to help get the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964. In early 1970s, Republican President Richard Nixon called on Congress to make sweeping reforms to U.S. environmental policy, including implementation of the Environmental Protection Agency and the Endangered Species Act. Republican Bob Dole and Democrat George McGovern both worked together to convince their colleagues in both parties to pass the 1977 food stamp program. And the main reason that any legislation passed in the 1980s at all was because Ronald Reagan and Democratic Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, did something that nobody would ever do today. They compromised and got Shinola done. There used to be liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. Liberal and conservative weren't always bad words. Progressive used to be a positive term and it didn't apply to either party. Yes, it's true, the two parties used to work together. Now back in 2006, a rumor was floating around Jefferson City that President George W. Bush was coming to the capital city to speak and about a week before the possible visit, even before it had been publicly announced, about two dozen people we had never seen before began to show up at the pub. They were pretty quiet at first, they kept to themselves, but then I had to ask, who are you guys and how's the weather back in Washington, D.C.? Most of them were advanced Secret Service and FBI agents, but among them was the White House advanced team, led by a guy named Josh Gatlin. Now, I've never kept my politics a secret. I nominally consider myself a Democrat, but I have voted for Republicans in the past, as recently as this past primary season, when I believed a couple of the local people who were running on the Republican ticket were good candidates. Josh Gatlin, a Republican, and he and I got along very well. I had lived off and on in Texas in the late 80s and early 90s, where he was from, and we enjoyed discussing politics, and we could do so without getting pissed off at each other. And we both enjoyed having a cold one while we talked the night before the president was to speak in jefferson city josh called me and asked that marilee and i be his guest at the auditorium you know i'm a democrat right josh i said he said yes i knew that but he wanted me to meet the president of the united states how many times do you get a chance to do that We showed up the next day at the event. I called Josh. He sent a Secret Service agent out to escort us in past the crowd of people standing in line to get through security and escorted us up to our seats along the aisle on the second row down front. Josh came along and he explained that I should move up to the barrier just as soon as the president said goodbye and I'd get a chance to shake his hand. And I did. But before the president even arrived, we had to wait a very long time. So on one of my trips out of the auditorium up to the lobby and the restrooms, a customer of ours at the pub, a woman who was heavily involved with the local Republican Party, I'll just call her Jill for this story, but that's not her real name, she came at me like a rocket. Alan Tapman, how does a Democrat like you get a seat up there in front while we're up in the balcony? I shrugged my shoulders and smiled. Well, Jill, I don't know. Maybe it's more important to have a conversation and a cold beer with a guy than to agree with his politics. Yes, there used to be civility in this country, civility in our politics, civility in the way we lived. We used to live the civil life. Maybe we can again someday, if we could just all sit down together and have a beer and talk it out. But I wouldn't count on it anytime real soon. This is episode 22.
1: Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman.
0: Thank you, Jessica, and hello, everyone. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, coming to you from the home studio in the scenic capital on the bluffs overlooking the Missouri River. I am Alan Tatman, and thank you for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. This week, I went just a bit to the east to St. Louis and checked in with one of the best little breweries in the state, the Civil Life Brewing Company. And I sat down and spoke with the owner, Jake Hafner, and head brewer, Dylan Mosley. And while the Civil Life is not the biggest brewery in St. Louis, we all know who that is, it is one of the most respected and it has a devoted following among craft beer lovers in the Gateway to the West. And Jake and Dylan, you may have already met them, not literally, but if you've watched these videos, How to Brew Craft Beer, an uncut look behind the scenes at Civil Life Brewing, or another video, It's Not Business, It's Personal, Civil Life Brewery, both on YouTube. So for a small brewery, these guys are out there. They're getting some attention. They're promoting and talking about craft brewing in the Gateway City. So we have that coming up. Tony Rehagen is not with us this week. He's out working at his in real life job, but he'll be back with us next episode. But first, before we get to the interview, let's take a quick look at the craft beer scene in St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> The bruised Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out. Now, first, guys, I've got to apologize again. I hate doing this, but I've still <laughs> I've still got this sinus thing going on. And if it sounds like I got marbles in the back of my throat, you'll know why. Uh, it's aggravating. It's just one of these things. I just can't shake it. Anyway, back to the show. St. Louis is known for its beer. St. Louis loves its beer. After Milwaukee, it's probably the most famous brewing city in the United States, thanks mostly to an endless cavalcade of uh, television and radio advertising in the last half of the 20th century that always ended every spot stating Anheuser-Busch Company, St. Louis, Missouri. But it's not just Anheuser-Busch that deserves credit. For the reputation of Sud City Falstaff was another giant in the market In the 20th century But they fell on hard times in the 1970s Now I did a quick look At the history of Falstaff in St. Louis In episode 4 So uh, you might want to go back And give that a check Estimates are that there were as many as 30 breweries In St. Louis in the late 1800s But coming out of Prohibition Only Anheuser-Busch And Greasy Dick Brewing the makers of Falstaff, were still around. Now, what if I told you that today there are more breweries in St. Louis than there have ever been in the history of the Gateway City? Today, there are 52 breweries in the greater St. Louis metro area. And of that growth, 40 of those breweries have emerged since 2008, just 10 years ago, the same year that InBev bought up Anheuser-Busch. In 2008, those breweries not called AB brewed about 31,000 barrels of beer, and last year they brewed 143,000, an increase of more than 350% over the decade, eclipsing the national production growth average by more than 150%. The craft beer revolution in St. Louis began in 1991, when Tom Schlafly opened his brewery, calling it the St. Louis Brewery. Craft beer in St. Louis was an uncharted territory in the 90s. We grew by trial and error, Schlafly said. We didn't know what people wanted to drink. We didn't really know much of anything. If you told someone who lives in St. Louis to meet you at the brewery, that means A.B. It was hard fighting a brand that was so institutionalized. But he pushed onward. Despite AB's control of distribution and zoning legislation in the state of Missouri, which made it nearly impossible for a small operation like Schlafly to distribute beer or erect a tap room, and the general skepticism of the people of St. Louis, Schlafly had one major advantage. We got way more media attention than a small brewery or business would have warranted. It was David and Goliath's story that everyone wanted to see. The opening of the Schlafly Brewing Company was covered on all the local news outlets, giving Tom press he never could have afforded to buy. Part of the message we tried to get out there was variety, said Schlafly. At the time, anything that was not on this narrow sliver of the beer spectrum, loggers and light loggers was considered exotic or revolutionary. Schlafly Brewing started introducing oatmeal stouts, pale ales, and wheat ales to a city that hadn't seen them in a number of years. I knew microbrewing was a trend that wouldn't evade St. Louis forever, he said. I had to try it, and if I failed, I failed. But he didn't. But probably the one thing that really turned the tide for craft brewing in St. Louis was that famous acquisition I mentioned earlier. Of Anheuser-Busch by InBev in 2008. They slashed the workforce from 6,000 employees to 4,000 in the city within a year. Almost everyone in St. Louis knew of someone who had been impacted by the workforce reduction. And it used to be if you could get a job with AB in St. Louis, you were set for life. And then 2,000 people found out they weren't any longer. Now, while there is still strong loyalty in a town for Anheuser-Busch, it's not nearly the monolith it was before. St. Louisians have taken to craft beer movement in full force. 2011 was the year when it really exploded, and four breweries opened that are now considered cornerstones of the industry in the city. Perennial Ales, Urban Chestnut Brewing, which we featured in episode number seven, the aforementioned Four Hands Brewing, in episode number four, and today's featured brewery, Civil Life. Craft beer in St. Louis will never bypass the Leviathan in sales, but that's not the point. The point is to make great beer, keep your customers happy, and if there are three guys who are doing that, it's Jake and Dylan, and the third member of the triumvirate, Mike, at the Civil Life Brewery. And here it is, your interview of the week coming to you from the Lower Tower Grove neighborhood in St. Louis, Missouri, one of the greatest craft beer cities in the United States and one of the fastest growing. I'm here at Civil Life Brewing with uh, owner Jake Hafner and head brewer Dylan Mosley. Thanks, guys, for taking time out of your day to sit down and talk with us.
2: Happy to be here. No
0: problem. I have been drinking your beer and a good friend of ours, uh, Steve Arangi at Gumbo Bottoms, he, he has your beer on draft quite frequently, and so I'll stop in. And, and uh, oh, Civil Life's got this new beer, and you need to try this. And you guys make some great beer. Thank you. And uh, I really enjoy it. And here I'm drinking your Schwartz beer, your black lager. And uh, this is really good, nicely, nicely balanced. What kind of hops are you using in this, Dylan? Well,
1: you know, a lot of times in the lagers that we brew, we... we, we really try to stick with uh, ingredients that are from the country of origin so when we brew German lagers uh, we're using a lot of uh, German grown hops. Right. Um, the, the interesting thing about our sports beer is that it, we really kind of go at it from an angle that is uh, a lot more um, unique uh, to making sports beer in that a lot of times sports beer is uh, ostensibly a very pale beer that's kind of colored uh, and you don't really normally taste that color. Um, we really kind of go the opposite direction and our black lager in comparison is you really have a lot more understanding of where that black color is coming from through flavor and and so that's, that's a very unique thing to our beer. Um, I want to say we just use some towel hops on that particular beer. We might use some tradition though. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the recipe, but it's either Howartau or tradition
0: on that beer. I know there's a lot of black lagers that you drink, and like you say, they're, yeah. they're a little sweet, but they're no, they don't have that roasty notes. Yeah. And this is very roasty, and you, you've balanced it well, the malt and the roastiness with the, the, the hops, so it doesn't, it doesn't taste real cloying in your mouth. It doesn't yeah. have that sticky mouth feel, so it's yeah. really good.
1: Well, a lot of black lager to me is, um, I don't know, like I've never enjoyed an aspect of food where it's it's showing you one thing, but then you're tasting something different. And, and so, like, when we approached our black lager, we could have simply doctored up the color so that it would technically be black, right. but give you that kind of lightness that you often have in, in black lager. But that just never rang true to me, and so we just decided to kind of,
0: Go slightly our own way on that. Jake, how long have you been doing this now?
2: Uh, so, we opened here in September of 2011.
0: Okay, so just seven years. Just now. Seven years. What was your background, Jake, before you uh, got into the uh, craft beer business? So,
2: uh, oddly, uh, I actually ran a, and owned a wine bar that was in Lafayette Square here in St. Louis. I opened that in 2001 and I sold that in 2009. Uh, Dylan and Mike, uh, Bianco, and myself uh, founded the Civil Life. And both Dylan and Mike worked for me at at 33. And we were maybe a wine wine bar with a beer problem sort of thing. So uh, I think we always drank a lot more beer after work. And uh, we often gravitated towards more of these Session type beers that could sit down and drink so well. And I think that the philosophy of that really came through from Dylan. But uh, we can trace our roots back to one night at work at 33 when... I decided that we should open a, a brewery. Yes, so.
0: I would like to know how many craft breweries had their inception ideas over drinking beer one <laughs> night either at a bar or around a campfire. It seems to be uh, mm-hmm. that seems to be a continual theme in the creation of craft breweries.
1: Right, right. Uh,
0: so, Dylan, what's uh, what was your background?
1: Um, well, I think like a lot of people in the brewing industry, my background has really been all over the place. Um, I, I came through, uh, or I came to brewing professionally through the back door, you know, uh, it was always something that, uh, would have been something that I would have liked to have pursued, but I never actually started on my own to pursue it. I I actually, uh. Went uh, the good majority of my early adulthood, assuming that I was going to be in art school for <laughs> perpetuity, and uh, so I was in art school for a number of years and had a lot of uh, kind of in between jobs because of that. You know, so I've done a lot of things and, and lived a, a few places, and uh, you know when I when I got interested in brewing, it was because uh, I finally found myself in a neighborhood that had a really great grocery store. And they had a larger selection of beer than I had been exposed to, and uh, it was so fascinating to me that I just kind of started drinking my way down the aisle, you know, and uh, just kind of understanding that I didn't know what the limits of beer were. And um, so I, I tried a, a little bit of home brewing, and it just kind of, yeah, I don't know, snowballed downhill, I suppose.
0: So why did you guys decide on the Seven Tower Grove neighborhood? Yeah.
2: Uh, so, uh, Tower Grove South is—it's about a mile of people from this direction. So, Tower Grove South, so Tower Grove South is, yeah. yeah is a, but uh, from where we're located, there's about a mile of people uh, to the north of here, uh, and then there's also. So, there's a really great community aspect to it. It's a really diverse neighborhood. Uh, I think one of the most diverse areas in the city. Uh, and then also, if you go up Chippewa here, there's several neighborhoods not far from here too, closer to Hampton and Kings Highway. So from that aspect, we're, we've got a, a good deal of people around us still. But uh, more than anything, this was driven by a property that fit, fit our needs and was a price range that we could afford to buy. And uh, it put us in a really good position, uh, especially with how difficult the craft beer market is. Not that it's getting, it's, you know, the challenging environment I think that's ahead of us. Right. We're in a good position where we do own our property. And so that's really allowed us to that's to do big. certain things that really, I think, have, uh, in the future here will really help us better define who we are, I think.
0: The name, Civil Life.
2: The name, the name comes from uh, my buddy too, and is uh he's a photographer, but he's really good at conceptual things. And we were having a really difficult time, Dylan, Mike, and I. Uh, figuring out a name and so very often we get two or three names and then we'd like a name we'd look it up and even back then when there was 1300 breweries that name was already taken a lot of times so uh we, we kept going through and then finally we uh i purchased the building we were closing it on monday and on friday i was like we have to figure out a name and i sent my buddy to in the request and within 20 minutes he sent back a list of about 20 names it went right down the list and civil the civil life was right in the middle and Dylan went, I sent it to Dylan, Dylan looked at the list, Civil Life's right in the middle, it worked out, we had two of three again, Mike still wasn't sure, but I was like, I think this is it, and uh, it just kind of, the the website, we did, you know, the Civil Life was available, so we were able to take all that stuff, and uh, it just worked, and it really captures, I think, uh, this idea that, you know, in a sense, like, drinking fine ales is a sign of a Civil Life, uh, Patrick, our bartender, uh, coined that term a while ago, and, I think it just kind of captured a little bit about how we're how we deal with ourselves deal with our people deal with the the world around us and little did we know that like you know two years into this we started um, putting out a lot of stickers and with our the, high, the head of our logo it says be civil underneath it and that around town we've got yard signs around town you can drive this neighborhood and people put up our yard signs uh, in front of uh, their house just says, be civil. be civil. We've had local teachers that are able to put this up in their classrooms because it is just a message. It's, it's yeah. not necessarily, if you know about us, it's tied right. to us. Uh, we didn't realize five years ago what that would mean today, and I think now the message is kind of, uh, runs a little bit deeper, I think. So, You
0: guys, speaking of this location here, you have done a really great job of turning an industrial building into a really comfortable pub space. You've got a lot of wood, it's just warm, it's inviting, and it doesn't feel like you're in a Bonanza building. Right, you right. Know, it does not.
2: <laughs> this brings up one yeah. of my favorite stories about this place I have to share. Yeah. When we were uh, getting open, and we had the exterior of the building was done, and I was standing up front, uh, we hadn't built the, or we just built the fence around it. We got a little wood fence and a patio out front, and I'm on the phone with the bank of all places. That was a, a nice conversation, I'd say. And uh, this guy comes r- riding his bike, to, uh, makes the right turn on Holt, Holt and is riding in front of me and I'm in the middle of the conversation and he goes, he yells out, what's this place gonna be? A golden corral? <laughs> and kept riding. And to this day, I still crack up about that every day because still from the exterior of the building, it is it is a warehouse built right. in the 1950s. Right. Uh, but we were able to, with the, you know, there's a lot of mediums people use to to make people feel comfortable, and I think there's nothing better than than wood and and craftsmanship. And right. our buddy Jim Woolrab is a great carpenter, and and he was the one that uh, really drove this arts and craft style. And yep. and there's, it, it's it's really interesting because you walk in, and even though you're in this 1950s warehouse, all of a sudden you feel a lot more comfortable, you and you see the wood and and the the craftsmanship and. It's a lot easier place to hang out, and I think as a result.
0: So, Dylan, annual production, how much beer are you making here every year?
1: Right now, we're, uh, we're at about 3,200 barrels, and okay. uh, the vast majority of that is uh, keg products. Um, we have had a mobile canner in uh, the last year and a half, and so a small portion of that has been canned, um, but we've since our inception, we've been uh, really heavily focused on draft products and uh, when we expand uh, our building next year we'll take control of canning and uh, those numbers should go up fabulous yeah
0: let me ask, how big is your brew house right now how many barrel fermenters?
1: we we run on a 20 barrel brew length uh hot side mm-hmm. and the uh, fermenters range from uh, single batch uh, 20 barrel fermenters to
0: triple batch 60s distribution where are you guys at right now
2: uh, so we're throughout the state of missouri uh, and then we're in southern illinois mm-hmm. And then we're in uh, D.C. and Virginia, in uh, a very small amount in D.C. and Virginia. Okay, we're talking well, about explain
0: about. how that
2: came about. Uh, that actually came around, uh, if you talk about the camaraderie of uh, craft beer, this is a good example. Um, Phil from Perennial had Casella in, which is his distributor uh, in D.C., and had really good luck with them. They were actually in town and uh, touring the breweries, and he made sure they came by here and introduced us, and that kind of started it. So it was really a connection through a local brewery that helped us out with that. So.
0: so how many bars are you in Virginia and D.C.? Area? Uh, there's a, I think Ball every,
2: bar. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a small amount. Right. We're, we're sending maybe two pallets a month at this point. So okay. it's no, uh, it's, it's, a, it's not a, every market around the country, I think, has gotten a lot more difficult. And with us being in this kind of, we're still small. We're trying to figure out our way. Uh, you know, D.C.'s been a market that it's been nice to be in, but uh, without being able to put some in the market, uh, we're not really seeing a lot so of... So the, the distributor
0: is really in charge of your marketing in that market?
1: In that case, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I think also, like, the way we've approached uh, business so far, um, it's kind of shown us that, like, our own pub is kind of the heartbeat of, of what we've been doing, and it's uh, it's something that, like, you know, as a, as a brewery, uh, you like to know how well your product's being taken care of. And under this roof, you know, I know what its life is. And the minute you entrust your product to the outside world, it's it's kind of like sending your kids off with, you know... With no pants on, you know? It's like, <laughs> what, what, what's gonna happen, you know? And so. <laughs> yeah, you know? Um, so I, I think, you know, for the, if, if you wanna keep talking about the kind of messaging that we're trying to give, it's harder to get that message as clear all the way to DC as it is, you know, just down the street. So I think, you know, um, for a company like us, we've had to kind of approach things a little more close. Um, and, and as we grow, there will be need to, to find more people to drink the beer. So obviously we'll have to start expanding how we talk about our beer, but I have a feeling that uh, ultimately like, we're going to keep things pretty close to the chest for yeah. them, as we can. Right and we, do,
2: we do great here in South City. I mean, of our top 20 accounts, five are within a few miles of here. Okay. Uh, it's just the, the city of St. Louis is probably 70% of our sales and then if you go, we've got a really great distributor in Southern Illinois because it's a Chick Fritz, and they've done a really good job of getting us over there and, and getting some, some exposure to us on the other side of the river. So uh, so all those things have been pretty positive overall, and we're staying pretty strong as far as our distribution goes. So.
0: Portfolio. I've just had a glance at it, I've looked online, Oh, by the way, I love your website. It's not real detailed, but it tells you exactly what to expect. (laughs) Right, right. right? I love... I mean, life. This is where we are. Come in here. Don't be a... Richard Head. (laughs) (laughs) We could have made it shorter if we said that. Yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I love your website. But anyway, back to um, your portfolio. Any kinds of beers that you like really you really kind of focus on brewing?
1: Well usually when people ask me that question, I, I sometimes preface it with that I like to think that we're never saying no to any kind of beer automatically because there may come a point where that that style or that that, that type of beer that we haven't brewed might become important to us. And and so I, I and also like I, I love beer so much that I don't want to say no. Um, but what we have focused on and what we continue to focus on is uh, kind of um, just, uh, I always describe it as, as table beer, you know, and, and I don't necessarily mean the table beers that are always like, you know, between 2 and 3%, but just a beer that would, would be on a table, you know, like it's not unexpected at all. And, you know, so we do a lot of um, uh, what I would consider to be uh, um early American craft beer styles uh, we do a lot of typical English styles a lot of typical German styles um, and you know there are also some uh, some outliers that are still reflective of kind of those types of beers but uh, we tend to focus on things that are more malt driven than anything else um, although you know it's really hard to, Make a four ingredient beer without giving credence to those other three ingredients. Sure. So, but I would say malt is always something that we think of fairly quickly. Um, ABV is something that, you know, we're, we tend to be moderate. Um, and I would say 60% of our beer is between four and 5%. Um, and uh, lastly, I would say that uh, whenever we're thinking about brewing a beer and, and kind of pursuing it, you know, just the big thing is, you know, what is it about this recipe that keeps a brand a little different from anything else that we already have, maybe doesn't, like, completely individualize it to the point where it uh, looks a little funny in our portfolio, and then also trying to come up with something that is just still yet another beer that you want a little bit more of, and and can, because of all these other parameters, you know, Um, so maybe a long way of saying it. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. No, I I
0: I I, I kind of I understand what you're uh, what you're going at. Going back to the civil life, Yeah. pub culture. You we're we're coming here to be convivial. We're not coming here to have a a, a drunken party.
2: Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I I've been a bartender for 9 years in my last place and 7 here mm-hmm. and uh I think I've always liked to say, I've, I love drinkers, but I don't like drunks. I'm, I'm and, uh,
0: 18 um, years in the bar business. Yeah, and, and the is.
2: goal for these places is uh, a warm atmosphere where you can really sit down and, and the conversation becomes important with your friends, and slipping into the conversation is a much easier task with a 4 to 5% beer, Absolutely. and it's why the English have drank this way for years, and the Irish, and... Definitely. And uh,
0: in the, in the Deutsch, the Germans. Yeah, yeah, uh, go I mean, right down you know, the line. Every, every culture has its strong ales, but what you drink close to home was generally about 4%. Right. Because people had to drink beer almost all day because the water was bad. <laughs> <laughs> the water would kill you.
2: Yeah. I think what's interesting, too, is here we've got you know so many uh, customers that would consider this their local. Mm-hmm. And we've got people that come in here three, four times a week and not just one or two we probably have 25 or 30 people that live within uh walking distance or a short drive away that come in here every single week so not only we are their brewery we're, the, we're a big part of their life too and and i think that's real important to this place but so we've had about uh 10 customers of the last four years that have moved within walking distance of the pub so uh you know it's like i think we take great pride in, in this part of the city and and in our neighborhood and and when when we hear that stuff and we know that's happening, it's it's a big deal to us.
1: Yeah. And maybe yeah. Go, yeah. go ahead no, no, say, no, You no. know, and maybe um, the topic of alcohol is is something that, you know, it seems like we're coming at it from a particular angle of like trying to keep things uh, quote unquote mild bannered or something like that. But I actually like I thought about this question for a long time because I, I actually think of like alcohol content as being a, a reflection of ingredients, so I kind of think of alcohol as an ingredient even though it, it comes from, you know, ingredients, but it's, it's something that's there. It's water, malt, hops, yeast, and alcohol, and carbonation, you know, and a lot of times alcohol at an elevated uh, level with what we're used to now as an elevated carb level as well coming from soda. Um, sometimes alcohol and carbonation don't really get along real well and uh, or at least they can kind of be at odds in some types of beers and so it's been kind of uh, an ongoing thing for me to kind of make sure that uh, you know our carb and our alcohol and everything else is, is working together. Balance. Uh, yeah you know because uh, there are a lot of sharp things that can happen with carbonation and a lot of sharp things that can happen with alcohol and even depending on the color of the beer that's going to inform your what you think you're tasting so all of that stuff's important flagships
0: what's your number one selling beer
2: so that's the american brown and it's It's a a
0: good one (laughs) probably 60
2: percent of our sales Mm -hmm. and (laughs) pays a lot of bills and it's a and it's a beer that uh this city's really grown attached to. Right. And uh, it's uh, our number one, obviously, beer on draft mm-hmm. at all these pubs. And it's a, a lot of these pubs, it's, you know, one of their best-selling beers, too.
0: Guys, your brown ale is, is very good. It's, Thank you. It's not, a lot of, lot of brown ales I find to be quite boring, but yours is nicely balanced. It's very, it's malty, but not too much so. Um,
2: I, I feel I, like it's a category that's suffered a little bit from a lot of average beers. Yeah. And so one of the agree things agree that 100%. we often say is like, we make really great beers in these categories that hardly anybody drinks, you know? But, uh, but the brown ale, like, I think it's a nice testament to when that style is well done. It, 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 it has a deserved spot on a tap list uh, because it sits real nicely between, you know, it, right in the middle of all these styles of beer. And so in a sense that we, we love what this brown has done for us, but in some cases, it's uh, prevented us from uh, showing people in the market that we
1: make a really great range of beers. Right. So uh, it, it's it, it's a little yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we certainly never set out uh, with uh, with sales goals for American Brown. It, it was really very organic. But mm-hmm. it was one of the very first uh, beers that we brewed, and uh, when we had uh, you know three or four beers out on the floor um, in our in our first. Uh, a couple of weeks of brewing. When I tasted the brown out of the tank, uh, you know, we'd had a lot of success home brewing and, and I felt good about a number of things we did, but it wasn't until I tasted the beer out of the tank here that I, I had kind of this, this wave of uh, calmness that was replacing all of the sheer panic <laughs> that I had had up <laughs> until that point, um, that I, I literally said to myself in my brain, I think we could make it. And it was basically drinking that beer. And uh, before we had opened, we had an interview with uh, a, a friend of ours, uh, Mike Sweeney, who, run, who runs a, a website called uh, STL Hops, and uh, he was interviewing us before we were open, and one of the questions uh, roughly related to, you know, what what do you really want to do with your brewery? And I kind of casually at that moment had said, well, I really hope we can make, you know, brown beer, uh, because it just kind of screams Midwest to me. and. I I had read that in the last couple of years, and I kind of thought, wow, that was, uh, it was interesting that I said that in that moment, because we hadn't done anything yet. But, and it was interesting to me that that was the beer that like came almost as a gift to us, that, you know, uh, it just really stuck.
0: What's your opinion on the new trends towards sours and hazy IPAs and this stuff that just kind of blew up in the last couple of years.
2: I like to say that uh, I guess when I equate brewing or like these beers to almost like the food industry and the restaurants and, and there's those great chefs that are really experimental with food and, and do all these like cutting edge things with these foams and everything you can imagine that, right. that goes on with the culinary industry. And that's where that set of brewers is and I think it's a real important part of the brewing industry. And and I think we have a big fascination with, with what they do. It's just not our style. Um, so we've got great friends at Perennial and Side Project that do incredible oh, sours, right. and and have such a, a wide range of Belgian beers and and things that you know we love to to taste and drink. But when we look at what what we're about, it's just we're not about that. So so we haven't really done a lot of uh, chasing, um, uh, and maybe to our own detriment at times. Like you know we've we've an IPA we took us four years to make an IPA Uh, so I you know I think some of that stuff is just kind of uh, defines who we are in a sense that that we're not that but you know what we do is we believe in these
1: style of beers and we kind of have uh, staked it you know as to what we should proceed on Uh, like as we've grown our company over the years um, some of these uh, uh, some of these styles have made just less and less sense for us um, as a business. Um, and, and it kind of actually takes a lot of uh, pressure off to not have to feel like you have to brew everything that comes into the market and and, and try to be uh, so Swiss Army knife about it that you're good at these two beers and you're okay at these two beers and boy, you sure wish you had those two beers back, you know? And, and so I'm super excited that so many other breweries are, are doing all of this other stuff um i think from my perspective uh as we grow um what i'm more excited about necessarily than a new style of beer is a new way to like bring quality up you right <laughs> you know and and so i feel like um that's an opportunity for us to try to you know be in the Inventive crowd, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> invent better quality. Right.
2: <laughs> well, and you know, if you're brewing, just uh, there's so much energy expended right now on all the new styles right. and new labels and new packaging and new rollouts, and and there's also something that we find really beautiful about, you know, just making a beer like the brown beer and making it consistent every single time and not straying from that, and and showing our customer base that. That you know that we're good, sound technical brewers on the standpoint of just the the repetition, and uh, and I think that's something that we kind of gravitates to. So recently we had a, one of whatever meetings we're looking at the IRI, uh, IRI data for sales and all the top categories of beer, and we're like, and I'm telling everybody like we you know we don't even have in all these eight, top seven eight calories right. we don't even have one entry in any of those. No. Uh, and so <laughs> you look at that bottom ten percent. For some reason that's kind of where we've uh, uh, our beers really lie as total volume but it's it's it also is just who we are
0: right
1: but so. from a from a customer standpoint though how exciting is it to go into a brewery that's actually invented a new style you know like that's got to be really cool And, you know, like, um, it's, it it gives you, you know, like they're always coming up with like new ways to exercise, you know, like you can look on the internet and you can find out 30 (laughs) new ways to exercise. Uh, But you know, like if you, if you talk to somebody that that has a degree in like physical education, they'll be like, well, guess what? The classics are still kind of where you really need to be. And, you know, I think a lot of this stuff is, is like, you know, um, a little bit of just soul searching for everybody right. you know like uh and and i think that you know sometimes without enough of these things in the market you can't really get an idea of whether something's good right. you almost need to taste 40 versions of whatever it is to know and and so you know experimentation is, is really important but so is like doing like just all the grind you know just pounding out yet another great pale ale and if you can if you can be awarded any kind of a claim for making a pale ale you're doing a lot right that's because right. you know, there's so Cause it's much kind of an there.
0: overlooked style, just like your brown ale is kind of an overlooked style, yeah. You know, I, I, I like I said, I commend you guys because it's you know what you do, you do it well, and your customers that's what they want, so
2: yep, very true. What
0: was the worst day that you guys have ever had here <laughs> at Civil? Well.
1: I want to take a quick shot at this because you also I know you're also going to ask us about the best day. Right. <laughs> and I have two answers for this, and I do know what the worst day was but for me, but I think the worst day for the brewery was uh, when our, our third compatriot, Mike, uh, took us aside and said, uh, I'm moving. <laughs> <And> <laughs> what was his role here? brick <laughs> uh, so- Mortar.
2: Yes, yes, uh, yes. So Mike was the mortar, and Dylan and I were the bricks. That was uh, that was Dylan took a long time. So uh, Mike, you know, as mentioned, we, we all started together. And yeah, what
0: was Mike's
2: last name? Uh, Bianco. Mike moved away in our third year, right? Yeah. At the, our third year. and uh, Family reasons. Family reasons, moved to Florida. It was tough, and, and we, we figured our way out through it. And then uh, luckily, uh, two years later in December, I got a phone call that said, so, maybe that's the best that, day then. That's what I was going to say. That's the best day when Mike came back. <laughs> when Mike called back and was like, hey, I wonder, I'm thinking about moving back to St. Louis. Do you have a job? And Mike, I, I don't have one, but I'm, I'm going to have one. Oh, my God. So he came back and uh, and he is uh, lived up to his mortar. There's no doubt about that. What's He's, his role yeah. here?
0: Your brewer, your like operation, yeah. in the front. Yeah, I
2: think his business card says most valuable employee, 2011, 2012, and then not 13 and 14. Then 2015, 16, and 17 is yeah. is kind of that. So Mike, and Mike has brewed for us. He he can uh, he can cook, so we can put him in the kitchen. He can do the kitchen. He still tends bar, but he's also doing some of the background work for our expansion to get some more projects. Uh, Uh, Moving forward so that when we get to the expansion, which hopefully happens here in about six months that we've got some of the uh, nuts and bolts of uh, scheduling and uh, brewery operations uh, Moving better so that when we do start moving faster, we're moving into a stronger system So so right now he's really kind of a operations person plus some bartending
0: Something about this industry before you guys got into it that you found kind of surprising
1: Um, I think one of the things I found surprising about the industry once I got in it was just how uh, other small brewers around us were so, uh, and and larger brewers around us, were so helpful. Everybody says it. You know? And and I, 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 I had heard about it from other people, but I really felt like it was more regional to, to whoever was saying it, and it couldn't possibly be as widespread as kind of, and, but in our instance, like, you know, since I had never uh, worked professionally in a brewery, like, I was reaching out a lot, and, um, you know, uh, people were not uh, limiting what they were giving me feedback on, you know, like, it was a, just more open door than I ever could have imagined. Um, and that still surprises me because there's a degree to which, like, we're all in the same boat. Um, but we're also in the same boat trying to make the, make the same sale, right. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, in our market, again, like, not having to brew everything, it's really great that we've got a brewery of like so-and-so or like so-and-so that are doing different things than what we're doing. We're not, we're not stepping on as many toes. Right. You know? I'd
2: say, I mean, if, to me, too, that, that was... Without a doubt, like, we had um, people at Schlafly that helped us out tremendously. Um, You know, we opened the same day as Perennial, and Phil had brewed before. Uh, And so Phil had a a lot of experience, too, and and we'd bounce questions off of him. Dan Koppman at Schlafly, I would email him occasionally, and he'd always get back to me on something, you know. And uh, whether it was just a little question here or there, but it was uh, Otto had, you know, I remember we had asked he was at Schlafly, too. Like, there's a lot of guys at Schlafly that we'd have some questions with you know, equipment or something and they'd get back to us with a really thoughtful response and, nice. and that community I think really uh, the, the ones of us that came up in that 2011 which was uh, Four Hands, Urban Chestnut, Perennial and us and then uh, Second Shift was the year before us but all of us, I think, have become you know pretty tight and uh, and good sounding boards for each other because we kind of were growing up at the same time, right. and so that network has been really good, um, you know, for us uh, as a brewery, and I think for just for the local community too.
1: And I, and I think a lot of people who open breweries really have a huge understanding of what the financial situation is uh, of their you know of, of what it takes, and even if. It's not always going to help you to tell somebody a better way to do it, you know, right. in all honesty. You don't want anybody to lose their house, Right. you know. They've got family, they've got kids, like, you, you, you need to be smart about it. And if somebody's asking you a genuine question, you
0: know, you're giving them the right answer that you, you know, know, you know. Huh? What challenges do you guys see coming down for uh, independent craft brewers? Hmm.
2: I'd like to talk about this in the sense that uh, I think what we're experiencing now, uh, if you go back to 2011 when there was you know, 1,100 breweries or so, and now we're close to 7,000, I think. Right. But that percentage growth will never happen again. Right. In, it's impossible for it to happen again. A lot of people that
0: study the economics of this say there's going to be a crash. Right, I right, mean, right. And those those guys that are just all over the board and haven't, right. haven't found their market...
2: Well, and I can say, you know, from from our you know our end too, we we've been flat for about three years now, mm-hmm. and we're only a company that's seven years old. So, you know, close to fifty percent of our existence here coming up, uh, we haven't seen any sales growth. Now, luckily, we made some really good decisions, and I because I sold my previous business, we came in and we owned this property. Those things worked in our favor. Um, so we're I, I think we've uh, from my business philosophy, we're we're structured to make it through. What I think will be a, a, a more competitive time. I don't think this is a. I th- it's still super exciting, you know, to have all these new breweries come up. Um, the The issue is whenever you get into a, a much more competitive market, you start to see little uh, fissures and little like. Is that even a word? I'm not even sure. Right. <laughs> fissures, yeah, right, right, Yeah, that's yeah. that's So, but I think that's the right word for those fissures. Fissures, right, right. right. So, so any, anyway, but um. And I think so we see some of that now. Yeah. And uh, and there's some questioning about, like, oh, do we need another brewery there? And those kind of things. And people are getting into other markets. And, and that's because this is never... This is, like, such a massive increase of breweries. Everybody's now trying to f- see where they fit and, and and how to proceed through it. And my hope is we still maintain that, you know, that kindness, I guess, that, like, other people extended to us as we go through this next stage... Is there going to be a shakeout? Likely there's going to be something. The, the, the interesting thing about the craft beer market, the last seven years have coincided with the economy expanding every year. Exactly. And so we've never seen a craft beer market when, when the economy turns down. Hopefully people drink a lot more beer if that happens. Yeah. But, uh, but there's no guarantees out there. Absolutely. So um, And we've seen in the last, uh, in St. Louis compared to five six years ago we have a tremendous amount more bars and restaurants than we ever have and that's still really good for the consumer here just like more breweries are good for the consumer too and eventually the market figures itself out and uh, uh very likely when that does happen there's going to be um some beer some breweries that aren't that aren't doing very well or, or weren't structured financially well uh, that'll struggle. So.
0: so, that's from the business side of things. From the brewing side of things, Dylan, what do you see as challenges ahead? Well, just really practically speaking,
1: um, like we're, you know, we're, <clears throat> we're setting up an expansion that, that does revolve heavily around changing the format of our beer from just kegs to canning. Right. And um, even just the logistics of ensuring that there will be enough cans in the market uh, for breweries to purchase. Um, is starting to become questionable. Um, so many people are using mobile services, and then they're going to want to jump into doing their own. That like there, are there are these degrees to which like the, the the let's just call it the growers market. The people making, you know, growing hops, making malt, um, making equipment, uh, cans, bottles, all that stuff. You know, at a certain point, all I have to do is get on the phone and call somebody and say, "Hey, I need this," but. You know, if you, if you like look at hops right now, there's so many hops for sale on the market that it's driving uh, like current hops. The pricing is like, is it worth it? I mean, I can call a guy and get year old hops for a quarter the price than like a, a, this year, this crop year. And you know, a quarter of price because there's so many hops out there already that people overbought, looking for uh, production expansion. We thought we were going to grow 5,000 barrels this year in this brand, and it didn't materialize. And so, we
2: were one of those breweries that overbought too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we, we yeah. last year we dumped a ton of markets back, a ton of hops back onto the market yeah. that we just didn't need. Yeah, it was so, uh, fifteen thousand
1: know, dollars like, worth. We so. use malt from uh, a lot of different vendors, and uh, they, I like to think that they're pieces of the puzzle for indiv- individual beers, but all it takes is a maltster to have, you know, uh, like Fireman had a, had a fire, right? and, you know, it's like, uh, am I going to be able to get all the different varieties of Fireman tomorrow, or is it going to be six months from now, or, you know, so from a practical standpoint, it's I think it's going to be harder and harder to assume that every ingredient that you've always used is always going to be available, and in the quantity that you need. Um, I think breweries, breweries that are going to be successful uh, from here on out are going to be the ones that have a degree of latitude and flexibility um, to handle some of these like outside, outside uh, their own brewery punches being thrown their way. Um, but uh, right now, there's still no lack of people wanting to work in breweries, so I don't <laughs> think employment's going to be a problem. Um, but uh, actual materials,
0: maybe, That's a legitimate concern. Yeah, I mean,
1: uh, and also with the proliferation of beer, you're also seeing more and more beer kept on uh, grocery store floors on pallets, uh, unrefrigerated, not always necessarily hot. But you know, um, it doesn't take uh, too many trips to the grocery store to find out that um, fair amount of beer is not out of is out of date. date. Um, And so I think again, uh, some of these things are the problems outside of the brewery um, that you
0: have. No control over. Right. The growth is just in in craft brewing has just been phenomenal. But of course, it, it coincides with like one of the strongest economic periods we've ever had in the history of this country. So you know we're looking now at nine years of un, un, uninterrupted economic growth. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm no economist, no, but <laughs> I'm not either. But I'm old, but,
1: enough, but I'd to, say, I'm old enough to yeah. know
0: that we're due for. <laughs>
1: A yep, correction, it, they call it. <laughs> correction. Well, there have even been articles as recent as the last couple of months saying that, you know, uh, potential barley production is going to change because of the climate shift. Climate change. We and, talked about that in last week's yeah, episode. And it's and like hops know,
0: and barley are yeah. both being affected. And, you know,
1: if you change. talk to... Uh, uh, well, I'm going to use the Brewers Association as an as a, as a idea here. I don't know that this is possible, but I think there are also people in these, some of these organizations that support beer that are going to be saying, well, that may well be true, but they're just going to be shifting barley further north. You know, like it's not going to necessarily go away. I, you know, farmers are looking at this problem. They've been looking at this problem. Right. They're more knowledgeable right. about it than a brewer. Right. You know, so they're already making plans. If they're seeing their yields go down, they're making plans. So,
0: well, and it's not just a matter of temperature. You know, like okay, barley barley farming is just going to move further up into more into Canada and less in the United States. Water. Yep. You know, we, we're we're having we're having years of. Droughts that we haven't seen in a long while, and luckily we haven't hit that tipping point yet. But, right, right, yeah, right. That's a possibility. Okay, you guys have got an expansion coming up. I'd say this is pretty big news. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, uh, tell us about that. I see that you've got. Yeah. I
2: think we can only talk about the expansion if we explain to people that we've been trying to expand for three years now. Yeah. <laughs> and four. Uh, we, we, four years. Yeah. <laughs> so we, I have this uh, annual Save the Beer Union address, which is a tongue-in-cheek speech uh-huh. we do at our anniversary party. And for the last three years, we've announced the expansion. So um, now I really fully believe that we are finally on the right track. Right. So what happened was as our business kind of uh, slowed down, yeah. and and it's it's very stable. Like I'd like to tell people, like we're still really strong business, but we're just not seeing growth. Right. Um, but uh, as we did that, uh, it kind of kept changing the way we looked at the expansion, and we had some delays with. Uh, uh, just getting the plans done over the, the course of the time. that And then this last year, we end up bidding these projects out, and, and the projects came in way over budget. And so we kept scaling back. And now we've actually, in some weird way, I think we always end up uh, where we were supposed to be, and though this expansion doesn't have the tower that I once wanted with a bell in it that we could <laughs> ring and that the neighbors would come flocking to the bar and at the 4 rang, yeah. and, uh, uh, and though it doesn't have some of those things it, it, this the expansion is really going to be uniquely civilized so it'll involve another building, actually two new buildings on the property um, one will have a new bar in it uh, with bathrooms and a much larger kitchen if you've seen the size of our kitchen it's about maybe eight by eight right now so we'll have a proper kitchen Uh, we're gonna have four umbrellas across the front of the property that will have both uh, they come out of Germany and they have both heat and light in them Uh, it's gonna be new sidewalks new street curbs a 30-car parking lot Uh, it's gonna have uh, just a, a much different appeal when you come upon the property uh, we tore down the auto body shop uh, about six months ago now, um, and so we're proceeding now, uh, bigger beer gardens and just a more dynamic way to present ourselves to our customers and and a, give more reasons for people to come down here more often.
0: And a planned so. packaging line.
2: It, exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The uh, the brewery. Um, you know, one of the challenges for us this this whole process has been. Uh, looking at how much beer we think we're gonna make and ultimately uh, the seller that we have isn't fully active so there's still a lot of beer that we could be making without even investing in in more seller space so uh, throughout this process it's become clearer and clearer that like uh, more seller space in this market maybe that's an answer, the question's being asked a little too prematurely. Maybe we need to take the next step before we see there. So we're going to take some pretty big improvements to our process now uh, with the purchase of a centrifuge um, to help get uh, a better product out into bars, restaurants, and um, and retail. And I think that's going to be, um, I'm really kind of hanging a lot of uh, personal stock in this centrifuge um mainly because like uh i really feel like and it, 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 not every beer will be cleaned up to the same degree but we've got a, we've got some beer uh in our portfolio that i've been happy with but not happy to the degree that i'm totally happy with it right and uh you know sometimes um sometimes yeast can get in the way of some of these other flavors that you're trying to trying to bring out in a beer and if we can do a little bit more separation there um, and get some of these other flavors a little bit more to the forefront I think it's going to really improve a couple of brands and um, you know this whole um, this whole way of designing this three building facility is going to really allow us to keep Certain housekeeping duties separate um, from others, and I think we'll have a better uh, work environment uh, because of it. And probably ultimately, um, our, our QC will probably take a bit of a step up as well. It's going to have it require a little workaround for a few things because, well, we will have three buildings, and you don't, it's not like walking from point A to point B in the same building. Right. But um, I think that even though there's some practical um, uh, stumbling points. The overall uh, concept of it, I think, is just so sound that it's hard to argue it. You know, like it, right. it, it look it feels right to me right now. It definitely uh, does. Uh,
0: what? good luck.
1: Yeah, we're gonna need it. <laughs> well,
2: I think that kind of touches on, you know, the original thing we designed a couple years ago was able to do seventeen thousand barrels, uh-huh. and as the market kept you know changing right. you know we really came to that question was like do we need to do 17,000 can we even get to that right and so what we'll end up at is maybe 9,000 9,500 barrels if everything went well mm-hmm. but uh it's still i think it kind of fits with who we are right and that we we haven't really planned to be that uh that brewery that is pushing and, and just always trying to grow and that and that we've you know, really done well just being the civil life, and that's a, this kind of fits with what we are.
0: Well, your name is well known and it's respected in the marketplace, and I am going to tell you guys, thank you so much for having me today. And uh, so, Jake, thank you. Thank you, Alan. Dylan, thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Now, I'm heading to the bar. Yeah, it looks Excellent. like we all need another one. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And that's it. Thanks, Jake and Dylan, for the hospitality, and I hope the next time I'm through I get to meet Mike. Great guys making some great beer, and I owe you for a pastrami sandwich. Please don't let me forget the next time I'm in. The Civil Life Brewery is located in the Tower Grove South neighborhood at 3714 Holt Avenue. They're closed Mondays, but open Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from 4 until 11, Fridays from noon until 11, Saturdays 11 to 11, and Sundays from 11 to 9 p.m. They have a limited but a greatly diverse menu of offerings and some great beers. Try the Civil Common. It was delicious. If you'd like to know what's going on at The Civil Life, you can follow them on Facebook at The Civil Life or check out their website thecivillife.com.
1: You've been listening to The Bruise Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebruisetraveler.com. Cheers.
0: So that's it. Cheers, everybody. I'm going to have a cold one. Please check us out on Instagram and Facebook at the Bruise Traveler Podcast. And please go over to iTunes, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. The soundtrack for the Bruise Traveler is generously provided by our friends, Gaelic Storm. Check out what's going on with them over at their website, Gaelicstorm.com. Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. So if I don't run into you at our favorite tap rooms, see you at the pub remember drink locally think globally take care of each other and take care of the earth it's everything we've got and if you haven't yet vote cast your ballot on or before tuesday november 6th and remember vote for those candidates who share your values and beliefs you can make a difference merrily as always honey you are the measure of my dreams Thanks again, folks, and so long for just a while.
2: All the little boats have gone from the burst of Anna Liffey, and the ferryman has stranded on the key. The Dolan docks are dying, and the way of life is gone. It's
0: over, Muddy, over, can't you see like deja vu all over again. Lawrence Peter Yogi Berra, Major League Baseball player, New York Yankees, American League Baseball Club, 18-time All-Star, 13-time World Series champion, three times American League Most Valuable Player, born May 12th, 1925, on the Hill, St. Louis, Missouri. Died, September twenty second, two thousand fifteen, West Caldwell, New Jersey.